So grace and peace be multiplied to you. And that is how the Apostle Peter opens his first letter. Uh, I've announced this uh, a message, I've titled this message, The Apostle of Potential. So let's start and ask God to bless this a message. Dear glorious Lord, we praise you for the gift of your Son. We worship you for your infinite love and your holiness. We give you thanks and praise for giving us your holy word. We would ask now that you would help us as we look at the life of your servant Peter. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So my desire is to preach a series on on uh, Peter, probably First Peter and maybe Second Peter, if I if I last. Uh, in studying First Peter, I kept thinking about the life of Peter, and I just couldn't uh, seem to lose that. The gospel accounts reveal a most fascinating and unique biblical figure. What he teaches in his letter is often reflected in his writings, as you're going to see uh, today. Uh, His life seems to jump out at every page of his letter. So I'm beginning this series with a short biography of this apostle. In the afternoon message, we're going to begin looking at 1 Peter. This young fisherman had God-given gifts that were yet to be discovered. And Jesus would develop those gifts over three years. Jesus' plan was to mold this fisherman into a fisher of men. Now, had Peter known what lie ahead, he might well have thought, I think I'm going to stick to fishing. And in fact, towards the end, he tried doing just that. Our Lord would chip and chisel away at this young convert until he was shaped into that solid rock that could not be moved. This diamond in the rough would become a pillar and a foundation stone in Christ's church. And perhaps no other biblical figure has caused more head-scratching than the Apostle Peter. But we also find ourselves rooting for this uh, underdog. He's like that child who attempts their first step. Then comes the walking, and then comes the falling, and eventually walking becomes running. But Peter's walking and falling seem to be prolonged. But eventually he does sprint to the finish line. Peter begins his discipleship showing great signs of potential, but soon the head-scratching begins. He says and does things that mystify us. Now his ups and downs look a bit like a roller coaster ride. He slowly climbs to the top only to find himself plummeting back down to the bottom again. There's twists and turns that we don't see coming. And we can relate to Peter's peaks and valleys because we have our very own. Like Peter, God has put within us a great desire to grow in our Christian lives and to live lives that please and glorify God. But like Peter, we may look at our past and we may scratch our heads. We may be vexed by those troubling questions. Why did I commit such a vile sin? How could I have had such wicked thoughts? And how could I have wasted such valuable time and resources that I cannot get back? 
God had a purpose for Peter's life, and Peter's failures didn't prevent God from carrying out those purposes. In spite of his failings, God will fulfill his purpose in our lives as well. May we find comfort and assurance in our lives as we look at the, the life of this apostle of potential. His letter, letter opens with Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's as far as I'm going to go in that first letter. Uh, and then we'll look more at his life. Before Jesus, uh, Jesus renamed Peter, he was called Simon. We read in John 1.42, Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And both Peter and Cephas uh, mean rock. And Peter the rock would someday live up to that name. Peter then identifies himself as an apostle. The term apostle could simply mean a a messenger. But here it has a, a much narrower meaning. It was a special appointment and a title that was given by our Lord. Mark writes, and he, Jesus, appointed 12 whom he also called apostles. Matthew writes, the names of the 12 apostles are these. And lastly, John writes, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations. On them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So Peter was no self-proclaimed apostle. Uh, He was an apostle of Jesus Christ, as that text says. So Peter's writings were not his mere personal opinions. He was officially commissioned to Christ to speak the very words of Christ. In his second letter, Peter writes, Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that was the case of the Apostle Peter. So let's look at Peter's life uh, as an apostle. In John MacArthur's book, Twelve Ordinary Men, he writes this about the apostle. God took a common, a common man with an ambivalent, vacillating, impulsive, unsubmissive personality and shaped him into a rock-like leader, the greatest preacher among the apostles in every sense and the dominant figure in the first 12 chapters of Acts where the church was born. Well, here's what we know about Peter's domestic life. Jesus healed his mother-in-law, so we, uh, we understand that he had a wife. And he would take his wife on apostolic uh, missions with him. So they probably had no children, or perhaps if they did, those children were now, were now grown up. And there you have it. That is all that God wanted us to know about Peter's domestic life. And that's fine with me. <laughs> The 12 disciples are listed in the exact order that they were called, and Peter tops those lists, and and rightly so. He would be their leader, and he would be their spokesman. Matthew begins listing the 12 apostles this way. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter. 
Concerning this word first, MacArthur makes an interesting observation. The word translated first in that verse is the Greek term, term protos. It doesn't refer to the first on the list. It speaks of the chief, the leader of that group. Isn't that interesting? Well, that would certainly describe Peter's uh, leadership among the other uh, apostles. Uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John were the first four disciples that were called, but it was only Peter, James, and John that would be part of Christ's inner circle. Why did Jesus have his favorites? You know, we think of Peter, James, and John, we think of Lazarus, we think of Martha and Mary. He seemed to have his favorites. Well, in his humanity, Jesus was and is fully human. Fully human. Since we have our favorites, so did Jesus. So, to say that Peter was, was inquisitive would be a huge understatement. He asked questions the other disciples dare not ask. Questions that probably made the other disciples uh, just uh, cringe a little bit at times. Here's just three of those bold questions. Now, there's a lot of things that Peter has uh, said uh, in the book of Acts and other places in the New Testament. So there's no way we're going to cover all those questions and all those statements that Peter's made. But, but here's three of those bold questions that Peter asked. Jesus told the crowd, told the crowd following him, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Now, apparently Jesus expected uh, Peter to understand that truth. Because what he says now, Jesus sharply scolds Peter by saying, are, are you also still without understanding? So, the other disciples were probably thinking, I'm really glad I didn't ask that question. So I hope the next question is a little bit familiar to us. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? Jesus often met short questions with very long parables. And this was one of those. Uh, it would be some time before Peter understood what true forgiveness looked like and what it felt like. On the night of Jesus' betrayal, he would commit sins that would make him run and hide. Ashamed and self-condemned, he couldn't have imagined ever one day again walking with his Lord. Not till Peter was forgiven and restored would he fully understand and appreciate that parable and he would never ask that question again. On another occasion, Jesus told his disciples that a rich man entering into the kingdom of heaven would be very difficult. The disciples had, had left everything in order to, to follow Jesus. So as their spokesman, Peter boldly presents their case before the Lord. See, we have left everything and follow you. What then will we have? Okay. We might criticize for Peter for asking that question. But remember, Jesus holds out great rewards for it. And great rewards as incentive. These are incentives. So he tells us to store treasures in heaven. This time there are no rebukes. 
there are no long parables. Instead, Jesus tells them that they will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And whatever they give up in this life, it will be returned to them a hundredfold. And on top of all that, they would receive eternal life. The other disciples may have thought, finally, Peter, a good question. That's a question we like. But not all of Peter's questions were well thought out. And that makes him rather interesting. Often his thoughts were quickly expressed without first being filtered. So, But in Peter's defense, a good leader is an inquisitive leader. Peter was willing to ask the tough and difficult questions. He grew in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. And that growth came from asking and seeking and knocking. Well, in that side of the apostle, we can certainly applaud. Does your pride keep you from asking the, the tough questions? Are you satisfied with knowing just simply the bare essentials of the Christian faith? Pray that God would increase your desire to, to know and to hunger after his word. Peter could be quite daring and bold in his requests. And sometimes those requests would come back to bite him. I can't help smiling when I, when I quote this. John MacArthur describes Peter as the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. The apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. That's, that's quite an image. Right? For example, on one occasion, uh, Peter realized his faith was less than rock solid. Seeing Jesus walking on water, well, he requested to do the same. But when a wind came up, Peter's faith went down. Now Peter had a much more urgent request. Lord, save me. But Peter's sinking faith was met with a humbling question by Jesus. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter would one day make his boast in God alone, but that day was still a ways down the road. Through time and experience, the great shepherd would turn this, this proud, proud apostle into a humble servant of God. With three years, Peter would be humbled by the most humble man that ever walked the face of the earth, our Lord himself. And so... From the many painful lessons in humility, they would not go to waste in Peter's life. Not at all. He wrote to the churches, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud that gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Peter really understood those words that he wrote because he went through a great season of humbling. Well, Peter's bold request would continue. But Peter was known for anything. It was his bold statements. Jesus once asked his disciples who they thought that he was. And Peter gives an answer that was heaven sent. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Christ would build his church on that rock-solid confession, and the gates would not prevail against that. He made a magnificent statement. It's a confession that is worthy of honor. We think, way to go, Peter. What a great 
great answer. We want to hear more of the same. But this bold confession would soon be, be followed by, by a bold rebuke by Peter. After Peter's great confession, Jesus revealed his impending death and his resurrection. But Peter would have none of it. Matthew writes, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen. Rebuking the Lord of glory was not a well-filtered thought. The other disciples must have been shocked upon hearing Peter's rebuke. They may have well have turned and covered their faces and probably wondered how, how Jesus would react to such a statement. Jesus' rebuke would be countered with Jesus' rebuke. And his response was swift. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter goes from being blessed by Jesus to being rebuked by him. From being the disciples' mouthpiece to being Satan's mouthpiece. What a roller coaster ride. Jesus would later tell Peter that Satan desired to sift him like wheat. And Peter would use these experiences to warn the church of Satan's devices. He writes this, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a lion, a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith. He could certainly write that with great, great authority. Without Christ's intervention, this roaring lion would have torn Peter to pieces. And without our great shepherd, he would do the exact same to us. After Jesus' stern rebuke, you might think that Peter learned his lesson. And perhaps he was a little bit more cautious with his words. Well, but once again, Peter's filter seemed to be turned off. After the Last Supper, Jesus demonstrated what a, what a humble servant of God looked like. He began by attempting to wash Peter's feet. Once again, Peter's reaction must have shocked the other disciples and perhaps a few angels as well. He tells Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. Well, Peter's maturity and a bridal tongue were something that was still in the future. Our Lord knew of Peter's potential, even if he was the only one who saw that. He saw that. Like Peter, he's moving us to greater degrees of spiritual maturity. Our progression is often three steps forward and two steps back. And that's the way it was with Peter. Then there was the incident on the Mount of Transfiguration. Seeing Jesus, Moses, and Elijah in their radiant splendor and glory, Peter thought it best to say something, pretty much anything. Mark says this about Peter, For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Uh, silence didn't seem to be a part of, of Peter's personality. So he suggested three tents should be built, one, one for each. Solomon tells us there is a time to listen and there is a time to speak. God was about to tell Peter what time it was. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. How often do we speak when we 
should have been listening instead. And how often have we longed to take back those unfiltered words that we spoke? We can think back and probably not back too long. King David writes, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. And, and Solomon writes, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. But, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. God wants us to know about Peter's failures. He wants us to see those. And Peter failed most when Jesus needed him the very most. Peter's failures didn't always have great repercussions, but on the night of Jesus' arrest, they most certainly did. That night we see Peter at his absolute worst. On the Mount of Olives, Jesus once again revealed his impending death to his disciples. Quoting from Zechariah, Jesus tells his disciples, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Once again, Peter unwisely rebukes Jesus. Josiah mentioned this a little bit in in his reading. Even though they all fall away, I will not. I will not. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. I will lay down my life for you. Well, sometimes there's words we have to eat, and and Peter certainly probably looked back at those words, and I wish I had not spoken those things. So once again, we see Peter displaying an exalted opinion of himself. In his mind, the thought of betraying his Lord was absolutely beneath him. How could he ever do such a thing? That was incapable of doing that. So he felt himself to be incapable of such a wicked, wicked betrayal. And he was insulted that his Lord would say such a thing. Perhaps he thought to himself, now those weaker disciples, they might be capable of betraying you. But not me, Lord. I'm their leader. I'm their spokesman. I'm the first disciple that you called. I'm on the top of the list. It was me that made that great confession of faith. Don't you know who I am? Um, They certainly didn't say that to the Lord, but he might have thought that. Jesus did know who Peter was, and that that was the problem. 19th century Scottish minister Robert Murray McShane wrote, The seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. Peter didn't realize that. That is absolutely true. Every, the seed of every sin is in my heart. Do you ever think about that? That you are capable, you are in the right situation, the right circumstances, you're capable of committing sins that would make you run and hide. After betraying his Lord, Peter would know much more about what his sinful heart was actually capable of doing. It's been rightly said that the further one progresses in holiness, the more they see the the wickedness of their their very own heart. That night, Peter would take a giant step toward understanding that truth. Peter's overestimation of his faithfulness to Jesus was about to be challenged by Jesus. Jesus said to him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times 
that you know me. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus took Peter, James, and John aside. Three times, Jesus sought their prayers. And three times, they chose sleep over praying. Jesus spoke directly to Peter concerning this this failure. We read, And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Right then and there, Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. The sheep fled their shepherd, and Jesus was arrested, and he was led away. Next, Peter would deny knowing his Savior three times, just as his Lord had predicted that he would do. And Peter made two of those denials before two young servant girls. He vehemently denied knowing Christ, even knowing him, and even invoked a curse upon himself if he was lying. Without Jesus speaking one word to Peter, we read this. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. We're not told what kind of look that Jesus gave Peter. But later we do know that Jesus gently and mercifully forgave and restored him. I think that, lo- that, that look, that pe- Peter saw the infinite love and forgiveness of Christ. He didn't see a condemning Savior. He saw a forgiving Savior. And perhaps that made it all the more difficult to watch his Savior being crucified. According to John's Gospel, John himself was the only disciple who had witnessed Jesus' crucifixion. How was Peter to come back from all that? And how would he ever be able to live with himself again? Even as a cold-hearted thief and a wicked apostate, Judas Iscariot never survived the guilt of betraying Christ. Not even giving back 30 pieces of silver were going to silence his conscience. Only suicide was able to do that. If there was a way to fail that night, Peter seemed to find that way. Sorrow and regret might have eaten Peter alive. But something happened that would change Peter forever. And it was something that would also change the world forever. Peter saw the empty tomb, and that changed everything. And he was there when Mary exclaimed, I have seen the Lord. I've seen the Lord. And later Jesus appeared to Peter and the other disciples, and Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. And again he appeared to them again and said, Peace be with you. But Peter and a few other disciples thought it would be a good time to go fishing. And that was the very same place that Jesus had said to Peter, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And as before, Jesus told them where to cast their nets. And once again, they needed help in hauling in this big load of fish to shore. And Jesus would once again call Peter to become a fisher of men. Peter had come full circle. Like Jonah, there was 
no escaping God's call. God had a plan and a purpose for him, and fishing for fish was not part of that plan. Peter was that one sheep that had lost its way. And that brings us to one of the most poignant, touching scenes in all of Scripture. The Apostle John, Peter's traveling companion, he writes this. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Speaking of the fish. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. They said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Peter could speak from experience when he wrote this to the church. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Racked with guilt, the risen Savior had done just that for the Apostle Peter. This thoroughly disgraced and defeated saint would, saint would go on to accomplish things that he never imagined that he would. His usefulness in building God's kingdom was now being reaffirmed by Christ. Solomon writes of God's steadfast love in his less than perfect people. He writes, for the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. And David writes, The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. Again, Peter's successes and failures can never be separated from his writings. He can never be separated. It's one thing to know uh, and teach spiritual truths, it's quite another to have lived out those truths in your own life. Peter was often tried in the furnace of affliction. And that, and that well prepared him for those challenges that were to come. In Al Martin's book, Pastoral Theology, he writes this, The life of the minister is the life of his ministry. In other words, there's no separating the character of the teacher from what that teacher or preacher is teaching. They are one of the same. Peter's character was built into his teaching and his preaching. I've already quoted some passages from, from 1 Peter, but here's some more teachings that reflect Peter's growth in grace. I started this message with Peter's greeting. Uh, greeting. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now we may read that as simply a polite introduction, like a cheerful greeting from a, from a Hallmark card. But Christ's grace and peace had been multiplied throughout Peter's life. He was speaking with all sincerity. And Peter desired that his readers would know that, that same grace and peace as well. 
So with experience and authority, he could tell the church, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Indeed, Peter had a multitude of sin that needed covering. His sins were always met with God's abounding grace and forgiveness. Peter had abandoned and denied his Lord and Messiah. Christ's forgiveness and restoration would forever remove that fear that Christ would ever abandon him. And so with great conviction, he could write, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And Peter would come to know why Christ could never have abandoned him. Something happened to Peter that ensured his glory uh, into, into, into entrance into glory. And he wanted his readers to know these truths. And I think you know this truth. You have been born again, not a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Peter came to know that the word of God had been planted in his soul, causing him to be born again. The eternal life that was given to him was just as eternal as God's word itself. Peter experienced the loving care of his great shepherd for three years. And as an under-shepherd of God's flock, Peter desired that they would have that same comfort that his shepherd provided for him. And he desired that other shepherds would have that same Christ-like care for God's sheep. He tells these shepherds, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter's guilt of abandoning and denying his Lord, that was, that was really bad enough. But for Peter and the other disciples, Christ meant, Christ's death meant a death to their messianic hope. Their messianic hope. Jesus hanging on a cross didn't look much like a picture of triumph. Christ's shameful, barbaric death dashed any hopes that Jesus was their long-awaited messianic king who was to rule and reign on David's throne. Rome, they thought, would continue to be Israel's great enemy and oppressor. But Christ's resurrection changed all of that. His resurrection actually confirmed the Old Testament promises of a messianic king who would rule and reign on David's throne. Now, if you like, you could turn to me with Acts chapter 2 or listen along. I'm going to read Acts 2, verses 29 through 33. Acts 2, verses 29 through 33. In Peter's great Pentecostal sermon, he writes this. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. 
This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at God's right hand, and having received from the, pro the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The promise that a descendant of David would sit on David's throne was fulfilled when Christ was exalted to the right hand of God. And now he is ruling and reigning on, on God's throne right now. And far from Christ's death being a failed mission, it accomplished redemption. It was a victory that far surpassed anything that Peter or the disciples had, had ever hoped for. And, and Peter came to know that Christ's atoning death for, freed his people both from the penalty of sin as well as from the power of sin. He writes this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So, we return to the question, why did people return, why did Peter return to fishing? Why did he go back fishing? Well, he knew Jesus had been crucified and resurrected just as Jesus had told him. And before his fishing expedition, he had two encounters with the risen Lord. Then he went back to fishing. I think it was because of that sense of just absolute, utter defeat. He failed at being a disciple. He felt hopeless, and perhaps he thought his name should no longer be at the top of the disciples' list anymore. Maybe it should be moved a little closer to the name of Judas Iscariot. But when it came to fishing, Peter was successful. He knew what he was doing. There was, there was little chance of, of failing. And looking back at all his failures, he must have wondered how Christ could ever forgive such a wandering sheep. And why should Jesus ever restore him to the former position as an apostle? He had proven himself to be a miserable failure. He had resigned himself to defeat. I had my one chance, and I blew it. I blew it. So God wants us to see our ups and downs in the life in the life of Peter. He wants us to see his readiness to forgive and to restore. And, and he does this so that because he knows. He knows we have two, two voices that speak against us. We have our own conscience, and we have the voice of Satan. Uh, that are piling up against us. So like Peter, our failures can sometimes make us feel like a second-class Christian, having a little potential to be used in the building of God's kingdom. And we may picture ourselves as hobbling into God's kingdom instead of racing to that finish line. But let me ask you this, this question. Can you ever seriously Look at Peter's life and say, I can't be forgiven. I can't be restored. I can no longer be useful in building God's kingdom. Peter's life tells us a completely different story. After Christ's resurrection, Peter would have another life-changing event. 
Pentecost would, would mark the beginning of Christ's New Testament church. And it would also mark a new beginning for this freshly rejuvenated apostle. Christ told Peter he would build his church based on Peter's confession. And now with authority and power, Peter's gospel, gospel would begin to turn the world upside down. His Pentecostal sermon began the Great, the great Commission. No longer would he be intimidated by two little servant girls. On two occasions, Peter faced death at the, sands of the, at the hands of the Sanhedrin. Though facing a real possibility of immediate execution for preaching Christ, Peter would not back down. Filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter looked at them squarely in the face and said, We ought to obey God rather than man. There would no longer be vacillating between courage and cowardice. Well, almost. Almost. Even after Pentecost, Peter caved into the pressure of conforming to his Jewish culture. He was eating with the Gentiles, and that had long been forbidden by Jewish tradition. When Jews arrived, he switched seats. He didn't want to be seen eating with the, the Gentiles. Other Christians, along with Barnabas, followed suit. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Other Christians, uh, or excuse me, Peter was acting hypocritically. And Paul called him on it. Paul boldly called him on it. God's people now consisted of both Jewish and Gentile believers. And that was not readily accepted by many. And for, for many years, that was always a struggle of leading, leading, leaving those things behind. And that included Peter. He often struggled with that, of leaving the, the, those, those things with Judaism behind. And it's not until the chapter of Acts did Peter finally understand or perhaps obey uh, the Great Commission. The gospel was to be preached to all nations. It took a vision from God repeated three times until it finally sunk in. It is his powerfully, excuse me, but later at the Jerusalem Council, Peter was as bold as a lion. In his powerful opening address, he stood strong for the gospel. With unwavering conviction, he insisted that circumcision and keeping the Mosaic law were opposed to salvation through grace, the grace of Christ. Newly converted Gentiles need simply trust in Christ alone. For their salvation, that seemed to end the, uh, to be an end of the musical chairs for Peter. Uh, his people-pleasing days seemed to have come to an end. Under Nero's reign of persecution, Peter would be crucified, and that was probably about the same time that the Apostle Paul was also was also martyred. Tradition has it that Peter requested to be crucified upside down. He didn't feel like that he should be that he was unworthy to die the same way that his Lord had died. Well, some final observations and applications. Looking at Peter's life gives us some valuable, valuable lessons. First, Jesus gave Peter no shortcuts. No shortcuts. Nothing but time and experience, failures and successes could prepare Peter to be a leader and a pillar of Christ's church. 
For example, Peter didn't, uh, Jesus didn't tell Peter that he would keep Satan from sifting him like wheat because Peter very much needed to be sifted by Satan. Jesus was tested in the wilderness by Satan and, and Peter needed to be tested as well. He would be purified and refined to his very last breath. Peter could speak from experience when he wrote these words of encouragement. Now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In a second lesson, Peter just never stopped growing. He never stopped growing. Just before Peter finished putting pen to paper, he wrote this. In fact, I think this this verse is probably the most oft-quoted verse in our church. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That was the last verse that Peter wrote in his second letter. And that verse really could well define the life of Peter. Always growing. Spiritually speaking, Jesus never, never allowed Peter to stay in one place. He was never put into, into a holding pattern. For three years walking with his Lord, every moment was a teaching moment. And whatever else could be said about Peter, he displayed a never-ending hunger and thirst after the things of God. His questions may not have always been well thought out, but those questions revealed the heart of the man who had set his affections on things that were above. And third, there's another much-needed lesson this apostle gives. While Peter had his failures, he was still an example of what it cost to follow Jesus. The cost of Peter is not going to be the same as ours. We're probably not going to be called to die on a cross like Peter did. But we are all called to die. We are all called to die to self. But we, and so saving grace includes being saved from a self-centered life. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ and it is, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. He gave himself for me. And by this saving grace, we are saved from the pollution and the power of sin that controls this world. Paul says, what should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin live in it any longer? And the last lesson is this. We need, excuse me, we need God to show us our sins, as he showed Peter. We need our sins revealed to us. Everyone here, including myself, has a, an estimation of ourselves that's not the same as the Lord's. We all, we are all having a higher estimation of ourselves. So for three years, our Lord was preparing Peter to be a pillar in the church, but in order to do that, Peter had to be humbled over and over again. He had to be be broken. He needed to be shown that he was not the upstanding person that he saw himself to be. That night when he betrayed Christ, he came face to face with himself. 
like never before. The proud apostle was becoming a humble servant of God. And so from painful experience, Peter could write this. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. My, did he not understand those things that he, he wrote. He lived, he lived that passage. Before doing great things comes great humility. What are some of the things in your life that may be stunning your, your spiritual growth? What changes need to be made to, to move you away from a holding pattern in your life? God never allows us to park and put it in neutral. We're not always going to be pedal to the metal. But like Peter, God makes certain that we are continuing to move forward. And when we don't, God has a way of getting our attention. Do you see yourself growing in the grace and knowledge of our Savior? Are you pressing on even when you have suffered terrible defeats, heartbreaks in your life? Are you continuing to move forward? May God grant you the, the grace to go from one degree of glory to another. The story of Peter's life is in one sense secondary. The great potential he had was, was God-given. Even his great confession uh, was a revelation from the Father. It was only by Christ interceding on Peter's behalf that he endured till the end. The star of Peter's life was not Peter. No greater story. The greater story is this. The love and care that Christ has for his sheep. That's the great story. That's the story that should carry the day. That's the headline. That's with Peter. That's our story as well. Peter's words are as true uh, for Peter as they are today. Paul says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Peter and every child of God is a monument to God's steadfast love. Christ as our intercessor is not merely a doctrine that is to be believed. He is our great high priest. In, in a pivotal moment in Peter's life, he would, he would experience Christ's intercessory prayer on his behalf. Jesus told, Jesus told Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your, your brothers. Jesus' prayer was the only reason, only reason that Peter endured to the very end. And it's the only reason that we endure to the very end. And Jesus didn't say if, but when you have turned again. Uh, when, when Jesus prays, it is a done deal. Peter alone never stood a chance against Satan. Christ, Christ was the hero in this story. And he's the hero of our story as well. So what does it mean for you to not have Jesus as your Lord and Savior? I'd like to think everybody here has Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But we don't know. We can't look into hearts. So what does it mean if you don't have Jesus as your as interceding on your behalf? 
It means you will act as your own representative before a holy God. The wages of sin must be paid by someone. Without Christ paying those wages, you'll have to pay those yourself, and it would be for all eternity. It will be in a place uh, called hell where suffering never ends. A place where Jesus warns us about not to come there. Over and over and over, he warns us, don't come to this place. Every sin you've ever committed will be brought before the great, the great judge. And your sins will be irrefutable evidence that your punishment is well-deserved. But there's a better story. I like this story better. It's the story where you repent of your sins and you trust in Christ. That story ends with Christ as your Lord and Savior. He, he'll intercede for you in God's courtroom. He'll present his perfect righteousness and his sacrifice on the cross on your behalf. On your behalf. It's a story where God welcomes you into his glorious kingdom for all eternity. It's a story where Jesus becomes your hero. I pray that that is the story of everyone here. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just we give you praise and thanksgiving, Lord, for all you've done. Lord, you've given us your Son. And that's all that we need to stand in your presence in that last day. Lord, we thank you that you've, you've recounted the life of Peter, that we could, we could learn things from his life. And Lord, would you apply those lessons to our life? Would we, would we think about those things? Help us, Lord, to, to grow in the grace and knowledge of you and for the rest of our lives. Help us with all our infirmities. Help us with our difficulties. Help us, Lord, to take away anything that's, that's holding us back, that's keeping us from being fully committed to you and giving our hearts to you fully every day and every moment. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.